Hello and welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on culture, history, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. The question of authority, when to obey it, when to resist it, when to flee it, has never seemed more pressing in our time of mercurial presidents, national health emergencies, institutions under attack, and individualism reigning supreme, and some might say run amok. How can we think about obedience and legitimate authority in such times, especially in the armed forces meant to protect all we hold dear? With me to discuss these issues is Dr. Pauline Shanks Corin, professor at the U.S. Naval College and author of the book On Obedience, Contrasting Philosophies for Military, Community, and Citizenry. Pauline, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure's all mine. So uh, you pretty much explained uh, what led you uh, to write this book uh, in the book, but uh, could you perhaps explain to our listeners, uh, you know, what was the impetus? Why now? Um, sure. And just first of all, the usual disclaimer that I'm here in my personal capacity and not as a representative of the Department of Defense. Um, and, and actually, when I started writing this book, I was still at, I had not uh, joined the uh, staff at the U.S. Naval War College. I was still at Pacific Lutheran University in Tacoma, Washington, and obedience is just a, a topic that uh, came up a lot in the undergraduate courses that I taught. I taught, you know, ethics, social and political philosophy, including a course on conservatism and liberalism. I also taught philosophy of law for a long time, as well as military ethics and, and, and other sorts of things. So this was something that came out of my teaching. Uh, but then in the midst of the 2016 election, there were lots of interesting questions that seemed to be emerging um, uh, around uh, then-candidate um, Donald Trump, and, and he, he made one comment that if, if he commanded it, the, the military would commit war crimes, and so there was all kinds of discussion amongst my, um, my military circles um, about these kinds of questions. Um, and so I started blogging and started really writing the book and had it about halfway done and then uh, took the job at um, the U.S. Naval War College and then sort of finished it um, there. So it was a really, it was a, it was a transitional work and it also, you know, it was something I've been interested in for a long time because there aren't very many philosophical accounts of obedience outside of religious obedience. Um, but you know, the political moment also, there were a lot of people who were saying, you know, that it, this would be, a this is really something that we want to talk about. So, um, so finished the book and it came out in March 2020, just as in the United States, we were starting to lock down uh, for COVID. Um, and then, you know, that spring, um, we had, um, you know, protests. We also had the Lafayette Square uh, incident. So lots mm -hmm. of interesting sort of things happened just as the book was coming out. And uh, no doubt they will continue to be interesting. Uh, um, yes. So my first question is actually not about the impetus uh, to your book, but more of a, a general question that uh, has occupied my mind for quite a while 
we live in an we live in an age where we're still, uh, as Professor Samuel Goldman would notice, no, we are living off the embers of what was left of what I suppose what one might call the post World War II world created by America, where you believe in uh, or the very high degree of trust in uh, political and social institutions, uh, with at least some degree of trust in authority, if not on critical trust, certainly after the 60s and afterward. Um, and where the concept of patriotism, even if critical patriotism, was simply a given. Um, but after the controversies of the W administration and certainly uh, the Trump administration and the uh, individual, as I mentioned, the individualism on steroids that's been uh, fueled by social media and globalization and people feeling like they are connected to a million different worlds rather than just their own community or their own country. Um, how exactly, it feels like even the concept of obedience sounds like it's a foreign language. You know, it sounds like something from another time that doesn't make much sense when I don't think either right or left really have all that stable authority figures anymore. Look how, look how fly by night Trump was. He swept away almost all the uh, traditional leadership and he might, you know, leave as fast as he came. So how, what, how, what does authority and obedience even mean in such a world? So, so one question philosophically is, do you need an authority figure? I mean, this question, I take it up in the book of what is it that we're being obedient to, right? right? Is it a person? Usually we think of some kind of person or institution giving a command. Um, and I mean, one thing I didn't talk about in the book, and this emerged much later, is the difference between compliance and, and obedience. I think certainly the notion of compliance has, uh, uh, at least since the 1960s, been seriously under attack. Um, so that's sort of the first piece. But, but I agree with you that obedience does seem to suggest at least some kind of uh, nominal authority uh, that um, can issue an order and can command uh, legitimate o obedience and that may be something and I think that's part of the dislocation of, of COVID was all of a sudden at least for Americans and, and perhaps people in other places as well uh, we were expected to do things uh, and needed to do things for health reasons but we weren't in the habit of like following orders unless we were in the military or some other context where we had to follow orders um, and so that, that habit of obedience, I think, um, you know, I think this is some of the arguments around the nature of policing in the United States as well. I think notions of obedience and compliance are, are, are changing um, and perhaps are, are viewed more as a negotiation, which is an idea I take up in the, in the book, that the notion that someone's going to give an order and then someone's just going to uncritically obey I think, first of all, it's deeply philosophically problematic, but it's also just practically, this is not, I mean, maybe there was a world in which that was the case um, at one point. I'm sort of skeptical of that uh, because obedience has been a question, at least in the Western philosophical canon from the very beginning. When I teach uh, my, my ethics courses, we start with Antigone, uh, which is Sophocles' great play about disobedience. <laughs> 
right? Mm -hmm. So, right. so the whole beginning of the philosophical tradition and, and Socrates, um, you know, one of the dialogues around his death is this question of, will he be obedient to to Athens and go to his death? So I think this question of obedience is a very is a very old one and is one that that we've wrestled with and most cultures or many cultures wrestle with in, in some some way so it may feel like in our sort of individualistic society it's something that's under attack or maybe anachronistic um, and I think there's probably some truth to that but I also think there's just very deep ways in, in which we do actually expect obedience I expect people when I go out on the roads and I and I um, come to a stop sign or traffic light I, I expect that most people will obey the law and my behavior is contingent on that sort of expectation so I think our society runs in many ways on certain kinds of obedience being sort of expected um, but then maybe other kinds of obedience and those of us who have children know this I have teenagers so um, obedience in my household is very much a negotiation at this point whereas when they were toddlers it was more compliance right you were looking for compliance but that's not that's not an option um, with teenagers so, so do we need to think about obedience in a more, um, in a way where there's really two or more parties involved and it's not unidirectional, right? That it has to be more reciprocal or there's more than one direction in which obligations can flow. Okay. Uh, so if we're bringing in the subject that the idea that obedience can make sense uh, even if in a modified form today, uh, one thing that that came across to me is very stark as I read as I read your book uh, that the it's that 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 there's the theory section which goes deep into like you said uh, stories and narratives and philo and analytical philosophy to understand uh, obedience at the abstract level, and then we talk about practice, um, which obviously has to some level uh, philosophical underpinnings but nevertheless felt like an entirely different world uh that was my impression i'm not saying that's objectively correct um how exactly could you not just for the military but say for police police uh, police people or health experts or or emts uh, combine the two in such a way that discussion of theory doesn't feel like well that's very nice and it may even be objectively true but it just isn't relevant for me when I have to make hard life and death decisions um, yeah I think that's I think that's a fair point I think the point of the theory is to help clarify our thinking and our intuitions uh, about these things so if I'm trying to decide if I'm a member of the military and trying to decide am I going to get the COVID vaccine in other words, mm -hmm. am I going to be obedient to what is now a DOD dictate? Then does does thinking about the theory um, and and why I might have a moral obligation to obey as opposed to just a pragmatic obligation? So a pragmatic obligation is if I don't obey, I lose my you know I could lose my job. In in the case of the military, there are certain you know legal consequences that might accrue from that. So, so does the theory help us think about, 
you know, whether this is a moral issue or a pragmatic issue, uh, whether I should obey in certain cases and not obey in other cases. Um, so the theory is really just there to help us uh, clarify our, our thinking about what we ought to do. So the core question is always, well, what should we do? Um, but then the second question is, well, well, what's my reason for doing that thing rather than uh, rather than another thing, right? Um, and so I, I actually I see those as connected, and and many of the narratives, like I think, you know, Antigone is about political disobedience, which isn't a military question. It's a, you know, she's she's disobeying on religious grounds, uh, a political authority, which I think is, you know, there are quite a few people in our country, in our, you know, in the United States, there's a long history of, you know, disobedience or refusal to obey certain things on 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 religious grounds and the COVID vaccine is, is no different. There's this question of religious exemption. So, so do these narratives, do these theories help us think about, help us clarify our own thinking about what we ought to do and, and when we ought to obey uh, the government and perhaps are there times when we ought to disobey the government? I think for, you know, Americans sort of our, our national history began with an act of disobedience, right? So it's very deep in the, I think, the mythological imagination of many Americans, this question of should I obey the government or should I not obey the government? But then there's also questions about should we obey our parents? Should we obey traffic? you know, laws, should we obey health dictates? So there's something we run into sort of, you know, every day, right? So it's something yes. that, that we come across on a, on a daily basis and thinking about, you know, when I shouldn't obey and for what reasons, I, I think is a, it's certainly a question as my teenagers are learning to navigate the adult world, they're thinking about all the time, right? right. And as a parent, I'm thinking about, all the time, like which disobedience am I going to punish, if any, right? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so I think it's kind of, it's sort of everywhere and the, the philosophical or the theoretical is not an end in itself, it's to help us clarify what we think. Right, and I should note that um, one thing I very much appreciated, uh, I used to, uh, feels like a, feels like a lifetime ago, uh, I was interested in the question of the rules of moral warfare. And mm. one of the things that drove me crazy was that, um, at least uh, in the articles that I saw, there was no room for ambiguity. You were either a uh, borderline pacifist or war as hell, you could do whatever you want. And I really appreciated that in your book, you leave the questions open. You leave them open for discussion and debate because these are the kinds of things that I don't uh, I'm not sure in many cases whether they really can be dispositively uh, decided maybe that's part of what, what makes philosophy fascinating right um, yeah I think there's also there may be I mean there's things that we might say okay I, I could say that this thing is wrong but there may be multiple things that are are right or less wrong or arranged you know things are complicated so Right. Speaking of complication, uh, you mention uh, the examples you, you, the primary examples you bring from American history um, are cases where it was very clear, or at least it's very clear in retrospect, 
what was right and what was wrong. Uh, for instance, the uh, the, Milai, the uh, Hugh Thompson's intervention in the Milai massacre uh, and uh, and things like that. Uh, and also the movie A Few Good Men, where it's obvious to us from the start that Colonel Jessup is 100% in the wrong. Um, but you also mentioned in the book, and I, I would like your I'd like to send you out on this, uh, that there are what you call borderline cases, that most cases are not so cut and dry and black and white. Uh, one of my favorite movies uh, in that respect uh, is Crimson Tide with uh, Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman, where they actually get involved in one of the dilemmas you mentioned, question of whether or not the submarine needs to launch on the on the legitimate lawful orders of the Pentagon. Uh, both sides have a very compelling case, uh, and it's never actually resolved. So who do we side with, and how how would we even go about deciding it? Um, yeah, so that's, uh, you know, I mean, you're right about that. Although I think for many people, um, uh, watching A Few Good Men, I, I think there's a, a certain uh, segment of people who actually think that Jack Nicholson's character is the hero in that movie. Um, I, used, so, I, I used to think so, um, but then when you think back on it, he was the one who was dishonorable because he didn't just order a code red. He corrupted the honor of his entire base just to save his own skin. He's like a right. parody of it. Yeah, which I agree with, right? That right. is, so I think there's a, you know, for some people there's a sort of a hermeneutical interpretation issue with a few good men, right? <laughs> okay. um, Fair so, um, and it's largely based on that courtroom scene and a certain vision of sort of military masculinity. Um, right. But you're right, those are both cases where it seems like uh, to, to most people it's pretty straightforward. You know, I think that what I was trying to get at in the book is, is, is you're right, that most of the cases of obedience or disobedience that people face, um, it's either not clear uh, what to do, or there may be multiple things that seem reasonable to do. In other words, reasonable people could disagree about what the right thing to do is. In other words, there are moral dilemmas as opposed to a test of of character and so part of what I try to do both in terms of the military and in terms of political communities is to say this isn't just a question for the individual but it's a question for the individual uh, within the context of the community of practice to which they belong. Um, so for many of us if we are going to for Antigone if she is going to disobey um, she, the onus is actually on her, and this shows up in the play. Um, uh, the onus is on her to make some kind of case, to make an argument to her community of practice, in this case, a political community of practice, about why she's justified in disobeying, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so in, in Crimson Tide or in any of these kinds of, there's lots of great movies where you have moral dilemmas, uh, where it's not clear what ought to be done, what very often happens is the protagonist is trying to convince someone else, right, or is trying to articulate their reasons for doing what they're doing to another person or to a community of practice in Crimson Tide. There's a military community of practice, military profession. Um, and, and I think um, one of the cases that we use in 
we teach ethics at the War College. We use the USS Teddy Roosevelt case um, mm-hmm. from a couple of years ago with Captain Crozier. There was disagreement about what the right thing to do was, and he was trying to make his case, I argue, to the other members of the military, in this case the naval profession, about what the right thing to do was. So mm-hmm. uh, I think that, first of all, it provides somewhat of a check um, mm-hmm. because just because an individual thinks something is right doesn't, in fact, make it right. doesn't make it wrong either. But sometimes not. individuals are wrong mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> or misguided or, or what have you. And so part of this is also that appeal to the political community of crack practice. So Martin Luther King uh, Jr. writes his letter to the Birmingham jail um, and he's writing to his community of practice um, appealing to certain traditions, appealing to certain ideas um, either within a philosophical or religious context depending on how you read that. Um, mm-hmm. But he's making a case as to why he disobeyed, why he's sitting in jail, why he disobeyed what he views to be an unjust law. So mm-hmm. I think there's some value in this. Um, when there's a moral dilemma, part of being an ethical person as opposed to just a moral person is this capacity to articulate why you're doing what you're doing and perhaps even trying to persuade other people in your community of practice that, that this is the right thing to do, right? So there's a, there's a persuasion piece and I don't think I mentioned this in the book because I think um, for various reasons uh, it didn't fit, but Colin Kaepernick's protest uh, in the NFL. You did mention it. I mean, yeah. I don't remember and you it's something it, we talk. Yeah, we talk a lot about in in class. Uh, this question about how he may he may in fact be appealing to different communities of practice. One community of practice may be, um, you know, people who uh, are victims of of, of policing um, actions, mm-hmm. members of a marginalized community, but then other, uh, there may be another community of practice that is, say, the broader political uh, context mm-hmm. where he may be trying to convince people who are not members of that mm-hmm. marginalized community that they need to take this idea seriously. Um, okay. Um, so, that leads me to a question that also has really, uh, it's a very hard question. It's, I remember it was put most starkly to me. Uh, you mentioned some pop culture references. So I was rewatching the show uh, 21 Jump Street, uh, which I watched when I was a kid. And mm-hmm. there was one episode where they're uh, under investigation at a, uh, I guess, a, a military, a, 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 a pre-military academy for teenagers. And um, the guy, the cop was un- was undercover. His his captain is a veteran of Vietnam, and he tells him that he was told that you're not supposed to you you don't uh, you don't dishonor yourself and uh, and uh, and 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 inform on your on your peers unless they do something violating honor or the military code and so on and so forth. And the the captain said, "Look, that was the official version." In my unit, the rule was you don't rat on your buddies ever. <laughs> right, right. Um, and it made me think about the case where you mentioned me lie, or the case of of of, lie, of people who lie regularly, or the fact that they cover up for each other. Um, and I and I honestly wonder if you have 
if you have a case where your commander or your peers are doing something which is clearly egregiously wrong, like by any reasonable standard, um, really two conditions have to be in place. First of all, it has to be worthwhile and that because when you when you cross that line fairly or unfairly right you're going to lose an enormous amount of social capital with the people who believe in the rule you don't rat on your buddies and second of all um there are unfortunately many cases where people quote unquote turn informant or they decide to inform uh, the authorities and the bad guys don't get put away uh so how how so the system, we, you talk a lot about the obedience of people, but the system itself also needs to be something that at the very least is open to the idea of, well, gee, we need to do justice even if this person is a higher ranking commander or if this is an elite unit, and how do you do that? Um, yeah, I mean, part of what you're pointing to there is a conflict between two virtues, between right. loyalty and obedience. Right. And right. so there's, there becomes this question about does one take precedence over another and that sort of, you know, snitch on your, on your friends is a, um, Right. You know, it is a is a feature that we see often in atrocity literature. The book Black Hearts, you know, I think mm -hmm. is really great, which is an Iraq case study, uh, right. does a really good job of putting those two in tension. And loyalty ends up winning out. And loyalty often in in military circles, in fact, is seen. Uh, as more important than obedience, right? And we right. see this as a feature of a lot of atrocity literature. Um, but you're sort of pointing to something slightly different, which is that the system uh, that is involved has to have some uh, sort of justification or some sense that it's worth uh, you know, sacrificing your your loyalty or your social position or um, the bonds that you have with with other people if you have no faith that in fact the system will will pursue justice then that becomes deeply problematic which is i think part of why i'm interested in bringing some you know just war criteria in here um and and why i use the example of the french mutinies on the on the western front in the first world war is because i think many of the french soldiers had in fact lost faith in their commanders and didn't think they were legitimate authorities any longer didn't think there was a reasonable chance of success didn't think that um you know proportionality of ends was was going to be achieved all of these kinds of things so they had effectively lost faith in in the system um mm -hmm. and their dissent their disobedience their mutiny uh was the final expression of of that of that judgment they made a judgment that in fact the system was not good that it wasn't going to protect them that didn't have uh, their best interest at heart and and mutiny was the result of that which if you know anything about that case ended up sort of they ended up negotiating renegotiating command authority and so it actually changed some interesting things um, coming out of that, but that's quite an extreme example. Um, so I think there's sort of a difference between sort of you don't snitch on your friends, which is also sort of, you know, a, a, a middle school perspective and also a core Unfortunately, to like, a very powerful middle school like, perspective. Yes, like, but <laughs> gang warfare has it as, as its center too. Criminal, you know, enterprises say you don't yes. snitch on your... So we have to make a distinction between like 
not snitching on your friends isn't necessarily a, a moral thing in and of itself, right? Right. But there is this notion of loyalty that we do think is important, except this, this business of don't snitch on your friends, well, even when they're doing something wrong, then, then becomes problematic. But if you don't think the system is going to punish them, and I think in the United States this has been the case, particularly with issues around sexual assault. Right. right. It's not right. clear that even if I'm the victim of sexual assault in the military, even if I report it, uh, it's not clear that um, it's going to be seriously addressed. So why would I rupture those bonds of loyalty, let's say, within a military unit, if I'm not right. convinced that that my commander is going to take this seriously, or even if my commander takes it seriously, the, the, the hierarchical structure of the rest of the military is going to take this seriously. So I think that's a really, um, it's a really difficult question because it requires us to have institutions and bureaucracies uh, or systems that actually do pursue justice. And as we know, that's a, a, you know, a, a difficult thing, and especially since the 1960s, I think Americans in general are, well, especially since Watergate, I think Americans in general are, are, are skeptical of, of right. the, the moral value of their, or the ability of their institutions to produce, uh, reliably to produce moral ends. And there's some good empirical evidence um, that that backs up that skepticism so I can understand why people are skeptical um, but I think the uh, the the push ought to be not to say okay well we're just going to abandon our institutions uh, to say well we need to work on making those institutions actually live up to what they're supposed to be doing right and the individuals within those institutions but you're right it's a very difficult um, very difficult problem. So let's, uh, let's engage in a thought experiment. I officially make you entirely in charge of the military hierarchy uh, to fix any example of a problem you want. Uh, what, what, what's the problem? What would you do that you think has a reasonable chance of success? Hmm. That's a good question. Okay, so since this is a thought experiment, this is hypothetical. Absolutely. If, if, if I could, if I could do anything, I would. Um, and I argued for this in my first book a little bit, but uh, another author, uh, Dean Peter Baker, has a new book where he sort of takes up my idea and runs with it. Um, I, I think the military should, and, and this will not make many of my friends happy, but I think it's time for us to rethink the, you know, sort of the warrior archetype as, as the center of the military profession, and we need to adopt a guardian model, right? And I think that if we could do this and do, I think it could be successful, because a, a guardian still is someone who protects other people, right? But it's not necessarily gendered in the same way that the warrior cultures tend to be, not all of them. Um, and, and also leaves open some room for, you know, sort of a more nurturing side or for a side that involves um, care, right? So if you're a guardian, protection is important, but care is important too. So if there were, you know, if, if I were able to, because I think many of the issues that and let's say the military is facing right now are cultural issues. Sexual assault mm -hmm. is a cultural issue. 
Mm -hmm. um, things like Eddie Gallagher and, and certain people committing war crimes, while there's an individual component, there's also a cultural issue, right? Yes. Um, Gallagher is a, a fascinating example of a case where his the members of his units did what they were asked of they 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 did everything they could to yeah. ring the alarm bells and it they didn't did. help they did and it was not and it was not heated in part because of the culture around particularly chiefs right right so i think there are many issues as a military ethicist that i'm concerned about um that that are cultural issues and and that a, a great deal of it um can be boiled down to certain ways in which, and, and I say this as someone who, the, the term warrior was in the title of my first book and I spent a lot of time talking about warrior archetypes and I think there, there can be some value um, in, in that sort of way of thinking, especially with regard to war, but in the last mm. 10 years I've become increasingly skeptical or uncomfortable with that. Um, and mm -hmm. really think that this idea of the guardian, which I sort of just sort of tossed out in my first book as an alternative for us to think about, actually has um, actually has some value and and would help with, you know, one of our you know concerns is um, especially coming out of Iraq and Afghanistan is moral injury, and mm -hmm. so I think there are ways in which the culture is part of the culprit when it comes to moral injury and would mm -hmm. shifting to more of a guardian culture which is still is still requires lethal force in some cases but lethal force is only one of many things that we might need to think about to be a good um, to be a good guardian to, to render good protective care which ultimately I think is what militaries are increasingly um, you know prof the professional militaries of you know the U.S. and Canada, uh, mm -hmm. um, especially because those are most of what I deal with, um, are, are asked to do right is more right. of this guardian role where they do have a combat capacity, but they're also asked to do other things like peacekeeping or evacuate people from Afghanistan or or whatever right. it is that's going on. So. I, I'm genuinely intrigued by this idea of the guardian. Uh, one of the most important things, uh, as a like a military history, not that I am, uh, is that you often have to have not necessarily mythologized ideas, but you do have to have uh, standard bearer ideas of who, what what a guardian would be, or a guardian unit, or a case where uh, a person acted like a guardian. What would be concrete historical examples like from american or other history where 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 soldiers acted like guardians instead of warriors um well i mean you mentioned hugh thompson earlier right. and i think that's a great example where he, right. he actually did act as a guardian in in perhaps in opposition uh to his own people um i, I think there are you know there are cases um in American military history, where what we where we do have is is incidents of combat or incidents of war, where where the idea is that part of what we're doing, and I think you know, um, you could even perhaps look at parts of Afghanistan and and the conflict in Iraq. Certainly, the first intervention in Iraq in 1991, right? Uh, we could look at that. We could look at the story in a different way and say, was 
was what was going on. I mean, I think Americans think of themselves as as protectors, as upholders of the liberal international order, mm-hmm. as you know, we're we're going in to help people, to to rescue people, to deliver human rights. That kind of narrative, I think, lends itself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, very well to, to a guardian archetype. And so you would, there are certain, uh, certain stories, uh, within military history that I think it's a matter of a shift of emphasis or telling the story in a different way that yields you a different way of thinking about <clears throat> what was the particular, uh, what was the particular battle really about, right? Was right. it just about complete decimation of the enemy? Now, there's clearly certain things that, like, it's going to be hard to spin, you know, the dropping of the atomic bomb, like, right. as an act of guardianship, right? Um, and so there will be sort of certain things where I think that will be more difficult. But are there, you know, pieces in, you know, in, in American military history? And I'm not a military historian, so I'm not going to upset my historian friends by, you know, by completely going there. But I mean, Thompson is the one, it's certainly one that, that, that stands out. And, and there are other places. Are there, are there places where Americans were willing to, um, you know, I mean, Americans were sent to Somalia to, to, to help in a moment of, of, of difficulty, right? Now, it didn't end well, right, from the American perspective. But was there an impetus there? Is there, you know, if we had a counterfactual, if we had uh, intervened in Rwanda, we did not. But if, if we had intervened in Rwanda, could we have seen that as an, as an act of, of guardianship, yeah. perhaps, you know, some of the, you know, if we think about Bosnia or other parts of the former Yugoslav um, right. nation, those kinds of things. So, are, 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 is there just, is there a different way to think about when, when the military is, is successful and does things that as Americans we're really proud of? Like, we're proud of the fact that not just Americans, but Americans were involved in the liberation of, of the death camps in Europe, right? That's something yeah. that people hold up as something that, you know, that, that right. we're proud that our military was a part of, right? right. That's, but that's not exclusively going in and killing a bunch of people, right? You're going right. in and now having to interact with these people who are who are who are starved and have been tortured and traumatized and all of this um all of okay. these kinds of things. So, you know, is there a different is there a different way to think about how we have in the past maybe thought about military history? So I look forward, uh, well, maybe you can encourage your historian friends to say, you know, okay, yes, fine, please. this is your, fi- <laughs> this is your field, uh, this is your field, but uh, it's, it's, and no one's asking you to say this was the whole story, but maybe this is part of the story that we need to tell to counteract, you know, the extremes that you tend to get uh, when discussing American military history. It sounds very intriguing. Um, how, I, I'm curious, how was the, uh, how, given the charge, atmosphere in which the book was published uh how was how was it received uh, in your circles uh within uh, military circles academic um it was sort of shockingly well received um mm. i think there were you know there certainly were some reviews that took issue with this piece or that piece but i mm-hmm. think largely um 
you know, people um, thought it was important conversation to, to have. I think within military circles, some people were concerned about, you know, my notion of professional judgment and discretion, especially if we extended that outside the officer corps. Are we going to let, you know, junior enlisted have professional judgment and discretion? And my yeah. argument is they already have it. Uh, it's called yeah. mission command. <laughs> and they ought to have it anyway. Um, but yes, generally, uh, especially uh, most of the book was, I think, well-received because of what happened right after it came out. It came out in March 2020. I think a lot of the initial interest was around one chapter, which was on civil-military relations, which was only one chapter in the book, but because of events like Lafayette Square and the Black Lives Matter protests, and also the fact that I teach and, and write on philosophy of race as well, I think that sort of People seem much more interested in, in that piece, which to me was a very sort of small uh, piece of, of the book. But yeah, there's, you know, some been some interesting conversations. I haven't really heard any criticisms. The criticisms that I've heard have seemed completely fair to me. Um, okay. I haven't, That's good. you know, seen any criticism, but maybe people aren't like telling me, you know, just maybe people are like, well, she's just way off and this is a terrible book and no one forwarded that book review to me. So, um, all right. So, uh, what's next? Uh, what's next for you now? Anything? In the, uh, anything in the oven? Yeah, I'm. On, I'm on a. I'm doing some sort of shorter pieces. I'm writing a piece on military necessity, which is a mm -hmm. piece of just war uh, theory. Eventually, I have two uh, long-term book projects. One will be on stoicism. Um, stoicism is very popular uh, these days, and and in particular, a certain approach to uh, stoicism that I think is uh, problematic and inconsistent with some of the stoic texts. So maybe going back, especially around the issue of emotion and stoicism. Mm -hmm. So okay. look, looking at that more deeply, Nancy Sherman has a new book on it that sort of slightly touches on that. So hopefully, build on that. And then I, uh, when I was moving to the War College in 2018, um, I came across a manuscript that I had written, uh, which I didn't really remember writing, um, but it's mine, uh, uh, on military honor. And so I think now is a good time to maybe go back and look at the notion of military honor. And is there something there that <clears throat> perhaps could be claimed because military honor can have all sorts of you know, problematic connotations and the notion of honor itself has all kinds of um, critiques and challenges, but is there some way right. to redeem some notion of military honor that would be helpful in uh, discussions of um, of military ethics? I, I, I don't know the answer to that. There's a, a chapter in that manuscript on David Hume, who I wrote my dissertation mm -hmm. on, but there's also a chapter on Nietzsche, and I think there's some, inter I, I love Nietzsche, um, uh, so I think there's maybe some interesting things there, but that, that requires sort of going back to that manuscript and then, you know, doing some more work. But those are sort of, 
uh, more long-term uh, projects, you know, and uh, I'm sort of at the point where also people just ask me to do, like I just wrote a piece on, on space ethics because um, a friend asked me to um, on use and bellow in space. Um, and so there's just sort of interesting things that seem to crop up from time to time. Sounds fascinating. Uh, and I look forward to seeing the manuscripts uh, when they become published works. Uh, Dr. You. Corinne, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.